one of the beauties of our practice is how simple it is. It's utter simplicity. Of course, we seem to have to hear the instructions 10 million times in order to live it, but it is simple. And so I want to give a simple talk, a talk about caring. Caring for oneself and caring for others. Because we practice meditation for the benefit of ourselves and we practice meditation for the benefit of others. This is a sutra called Protection Through Right Mindfulness. And when you hear the word protection, it also means caring. Once the Buddha told his monks the following story. There was once a pair of jugglers who performed their acrobatic feats on a bamboo pole. One day the master said to his apprentice, Now get on my shoulders and climb up the bamboo pole. When the apprentice had done so, the master said, Now protect me well, and I shall protect you. By protecting and watching each other in that way, we shall be able to show our skill, make a good profit, and safely get down from the bamboo pole. But the apprentice said, Not so, master. You, O master, should protect yourself, and I too shall protect myself. Thus, self-protected and self-guarded, we shall safely do our feats. This is the right way, said the Blessed One, and spoke further as follows. It is just as the apprentice said, I shall protect myself. In that way, the foundations of mindfulness should be practiced. I shall protect others. In that way, the foundations of mindfulness should be practiced. Protecting oneself, one protects others. Protecting others, one protects oneself. And how does one, in caring for oneself, care for others? By the repeated and frequent practice of meditation. And how does one, in protecting others, protect oneself? By patience and forbearance, by a non-violent and harmless life, by loving kindness and compassion. So this is what I'd like to look at tonight, is this circle in caring for ourselves, we care for others. In caring for others, we care for ourselves. And I'd like to look at it in terms of three aspects. The first is avoiding actions that harm or speech that harm. The second is purifying the heart. And the third is wise action, bringing the the Dharma, whatever it is that we've learned, into our lives in a concrete way, applying our insight, not just knowing something, but living it, responding wisely. The first one, avoiding harm, is taking care with our bodies and with our speech. And in doing so, we care for ourselves and we very deeply care for one another. 
we have the guidelines to help us know what this means, the guidelines of the five precepts, which can be gone into on a lot of different levels. Sometimes when one first hears the precepts, one tends to dismiss them. And I think the deeper one goes, the more meaningful the precepts become, because they have so many different layers and levels to them. The first one, not destroying life, not harming any life form. Of course, when we refrain from harming or refrain from destroying life, we are taking care of other beings, other lives. And at the same time, we're caring very deeply, very much for ourselves. If we don't provoke, there is less violence directed at us. If if we are less pushing something, we are less the object of violence ourselves. There are really lovely stories about Krishnamurti um, being able to pet lions or pet tigers and no harm coming to him because of the heart of, of compassion. The tiger on some level knowing that he wasn't going to be hurt. But just to know this in terms of the realm of possibilities, not that <laughs> we're supposed to be there or anything. <laughs> But it's, it's good to know these things just in terms of the potential of a human being. And the other aspect of not harming or not destroying life is that we become less mechanical. So often we kill little creatures or cockroaches or, you know, <laughs> to get pertinent about it, or little, <laughs> or little bugs because we just don't want them around. And it's not out of such cruelty, it's just really because we don't want them in our bathtub or we don't want them around our food or whatever. And very much, um, it can be a mechanical kind of action where it's not very thoughtful. It doesn't include perhaps a strong level of cruelty, but it also does not include much thoughtfulness. And so taking on this precept, working with this precept, means that we can become a little less mechanical in our life. It can add a great deal of sensitivity to our life if we are confronted by this precept every time the arm just goes up in a mechanical way and then comes down. The second one, not taking that which doesn't belong to us. Of course, this generally means possessions, objects of other people. It can also mean not taking from the earth. It could also mean caring for the earth and and making the effort, which is sometimes not so easy, to care for the earth in many different ways. It can also mean not taking someone else's dignity away from them, something very precious for all of us, refraining from taking someone's dignity away through our actions or through our speech. When we work with this precept, when we take this precept on, what it does for us is it nurtures a heart of contentment. It nurtures a fullness in the heart. 
So that there isn't this illusion that by taking someone else's something away, we'll get it, we'll be full, we'll be nurtured. Rather than that illusion, when we work with this precept of not taking, we develop more and more contentment within. We live more in reality, in the reality of contentment. The third has to do with sexuality and using sexuality in a way that is sensitive and careful. And with this one, when we do work with sexuality in a careful way, it does tend to make the mind that much more sensitized. And that's very much a part of our practice, of course, is to sensitize the mind, is to sensitize the heart, is to look at what really does cause harm and, and what really doesn't. Recognizing the great power of sexuality to both heal as well as to harm and respecting the power of it. I have a friend who many years ago was in multiple relationships, as in maybe 20 multiple relationships, and felt quite fine about it. Um, If there's no jealousy, if no one's getting hurt, it's okay. And he was working with the Tibetan Lama at the time, and he went to the Lama and said, is this okay? Is this a problem in terms of the precepts? And the Lama said, "Um, the way you're describing it, it doesn't need to be. But tell me, is anyone really not being harmed? Is that true, that that no one is being harmed? And um, my friend said, of course, no one is being harmed, and he carried on for the next five years. And then at another point, five years later, when he found himself in the opposite position, realized that harm was being done. The fourth one is speech, using speech that is truthful, that is useful, that is non-divisive, that is gentle. When we speak the truth without exaggerating, without understating, and of course, this is very, very subtle, and it's a, a wonderful area to investigate. Once one starts talking again, it's a very wonderful area of investigation to look at this area of directness in speech and to look at the area of non-divisiveness to see how there's more trust in our lives from other people when we don't speak in a way that's divisive, when we speak in a way that brings people together and that brings harmony to other people. I know that for myself, when I'm with a friend who is speaking harshly about another friend, I have a little funny feeling in myself. I think, hmm, you know, maybe they speak this way about me. Um, Maybe if the right thing were said and it touched something off, maybe this person would also speak harshly about me. And so there's a little quiver of distrust. There may be a lot of love in the situation, but just a little quiver of distrust. So when we do speak in a way that's clear and open and non-divisive, there's the tendency for other people to trust us, which is something that each one of us wants. When we speak the truth rather than not, it makes the mind a lot easier, a lot clearer, because we don't have to be remembering what we said, (laughs) so we can keep our story straight. 
So automatically, quite a bit of, of weight or heaviness can drop away from the mind. The fifth area is intoxicants. And of course, since our practice is going towards more and more clarity, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to cloud the mind with intoxicants. But it's interesting, Thich Nhat Hanh has an has a, um, interesting way of, of looking at this one, which is that by refraining from clouding the mind oneself, one is also caring for others. One is also caring for the world. And we see that in this culture, there is an enormous amount of suffering around alcohol and drugs. And that even if it's fine, that if one doesn't have that tendency in, in too strong of a way, he sees it as a way to help others um, just because so many of us do have a problem with it. So it's a statement, it's a very active statement of help, um, of protecting others simply because people do have big problems with it. So it's caring for our children. It's a way of caring for our children. When we do work with the precepts, when we do work with avoiding harm in any way, an ease of mind enters in. Even without moving into the realm of meditation, there's a certain ease of mind. There's a certain confidence that one has, a certain self-trust, a clarity of mind, and a certain kind of calmness and tranquility. The mind is less rippled. The mind is less worked up. The mind is less complicated. By Chang Zhu. In the age when life on earth was full, no one paid any special attention to worthy people, nor did they single out the person of ability. Rulers were simply the highest branches on the trees, and the people were like deer in the woods. They were honest and righteous without realizing that they were doing their duty. They loved each other and did not know this was love of neighbor. They deceived no one, yet did not know they were people to be trusted. They were reliable and did not know that this was good faith. They lived freely together giving and taking and did not know they were generous. For this reason, their deeds have not been narrated because they made no history. The second area is the area of purifying the heart. And of course, this is where we get into contemplation, meditation. It's the realm of meditation. And it's actually the deepest way that one can care for oneself, the deepest and most profound way that we can care for ourselves. Because what our practice is about is easing the torments of the heart. It's easing the sufferings within, bringing a very gentle and patient attention, attending to wherever there is suffering. Gradually, very gradually, we begin to see change. We begin to see the torments of the heart begin to fade. We can bring our attention, we can bring our care, to the feeling of longing 
within, to that ache in the heart that most likely each one of us here is very familiar with. A certain feeling of wanting, of reaching out for, of longing. We can very gently hold this ache. We can very gently hold this longing without trying to fill it up with all sorts of things that don't touch it at all. Rather than trying to fill it up, we can actually hold it in our hands. We can hold it in our hearts and, and watch the Dharma nourish us. We can bring our attention to aversion, to irritation, to anger, seeing the suffering, the torment of anger. We can bring our attention to confusion. We can see confusion. We don't have to just live in it and be swept away by it and be lost and overwhelmed by our confusion. But we can bring our loving attention to confusion too. Bringing the inner silence that every human being has, cultivating that inner silence and bringing it to bear on whatever it is that's unresolved in the heart. And always to remember that it is possible to do this. The Buddha says in a very lovely way in one of the sutras that he wouldn't tell us to do this if it weren't possible. Kind of an encouraging statement. (laughs) And in the realm of meditation, of course, by working with the torments of our own heart, we very much affect other people, just through our presence. Because we put our stamp on every situation that we're in. We may tend to think of ourselves as insignificant and, and not having such a great influence, but in actuality, each one of us has an enormous influence on this world. And we kind of sign our name to, to every situation we find ourselves in. Jack was speaking the other day about visiting Buddha Dasa in his Thai forest monastery, in his forest monastery in Thailand. And he walked in and the public, the uh, loudspeakers were, were going and a recorded talk by Buddha Dasa was happening. And the subject of the talk was Dharma as a public health measure. <laughs> And he began talking about how the, the uh, Kalesas, greed, hatred, and delusion are clogging up the country and how we all need to clean, clean up Thailand. Thich Nhat Hanh speaks about the boat people when so many people had to leave Vietnam and were put into very tiny boats, many of them in one boat, very high and rough seas, a very frightening situation, extremely frightening situation. And of course, there was a lot of agitation, a lot of inner agitation. What he said is that if there was one person in the boat that was calm, that was enough. One person out of maybe 20 or 30 or 40 who was calm, it influenced the whole situation and made an enormous difference in terms of the safety of the boat reaching the other side. It's also it's quite remarkable in the sutras to notice that over and over again it's said that if you want to 
cultivate a certain quality in yourself, like compassion or wisdom or um, generosity or whatever, that the best thing to do is to find someone who already has those qualities. There are all sorts of different things for each quality mentioned. But one thing that's always mentioned is to try to hang out with someone who is generous or who is compassionate or who is kind. So clearly in that, we help one another. Also, in working with the practice, in working with the realm of meditation, it's so important to remember to bring metta in all the time, that it's not just attention that we need to bring to the torments of the heart, to the sufferings within. It's also loving attention. Love has to go along with attention in a very warm, welcoming way. As the Buddha said, having visited all quarters with my, with my mind, I find no one dearer than myself, for self and other are one. Who loves oneself will never harm another. And looking at the realm of wise action, of responding wisely to whatever situation we're in, of living our understanding or applying our insight. And in this area, in caring for ourselves, we care for others. In caring for others, we care for ourselves. This is where Sometimes one needs to act rather than not act. The precepts are all about not acting, refraining from action. And in this area, it's the responsibility to act, to speak when it's necessary to speak. There are no recipes or formulas in terms of how to go about this. It's something that changes from moment to moment. And it's really listening that needs to happen, rather than trying to fix anything. I'll do this when this happens. It doesn't really work. One needs to be a lot more open to whatever the situation may be. This area also has to do with manifesting our practice. There's a Zen dialogue in which the student comes in, the yogi comes in, and says, oh, I had a wonderful experience today. It was just extraordinary, truly a moment of enlightenment. And the Zen master says, where is it? Can you show it to me? Where is it right now? You know, the, the yogi expected to kind of be patted on the shoulder. And the, the Zen master wanted to see it, wanted it to be visible to her. One can have very strong insights, very powerful insights in practice around impermanence, around insubstantiality, around suffering. And they have to be lived. They have to be lived within one's family, within one's friendships, within one's work situations. It has to be a live dharma that isn't confined 
to the sitting posture that isn't confined to any particular place, but that can thrive and be alive in the midst of the world that we live in. The Dharma nourishes, that's its function, it nourishes. And as we become full and nourished, it's a natural movement to give. It's just a very natural kind of thing to want to give. That longing that I spoke about a little bit ago, this is because we don't believe in the possibility of fullness. With wise action, we are practicing our unity with all beings, our essential unity with all beings through the ability to respond. I knew there were many interesting sights, but I didn't want any more of the little answers. I wanted the big answer. So I asked the guest master to show me the house of the Christian God. I sat myself down, quite willing to wait for the big answer. I remained silent all day, far into the night. I looked him in the eye. I guess he was looking me in the eye. Late, late at night, I seemed to hear a voice. What are you leaving out? I looked around. I heard it again. What are you leaving out? Was it my imagination? Soon it was all around me, whispering, roaring. What are you leaving out? What are you leaving out? Was I cracking up? I managed to get to my feet and head for the door. I guess I wanted the comfort of a human face or a human voice. Nearby was the hall where some of the monks live. I knocked on one cell. What do you want? came a sleepy voice. What am I leaving out? I asked. <laughs> Me, he answered. I went to the next door. What do you want? I yelled, what am I leaving out? He answered, me. A third cell, a fourth, all the same. I thought to myself, they're all stuck on themselves. (laughs) I left the building in disgust. Just then, the sun was coming up. I had never spoken to the sun before, but I heard myself pleading. What am I leaving out? The sun, too, answered, me. That finished me. I threw myself flat on the ground. Then the earth said, me, too. This is by a friend of mine named Father Theophane. Some of you know him. To practice our essential unity is not an avoidance of conflict. One can't avoid conflict. And there can be a great deal of withdrawal and isolation in trying to avoid conflict. Just a small personal example. When I first heard of this practice, almost immediately I went off to do a three-month course. And this brought about quite a bit of conflict um, for many people, actually, in my life, who felt quite left and abandoned by me. My father asked me, um, what do you do? What are you going to do there? Which is, of course, a rather hard answer, a hard question to answer. At one point, I said something like, um, so 
something along the lines of trying to get to know myself or something like that, which I wouldn't say now, but I said then. And his answer was, um, well, I know all about you. What do you want to know? (laughs) No need for all of this. All we have to do is ask our parents. But, you know, in the midst of all that conflict, as I'm sure you all really know too, there was the knowingness that there was no other way to do it, that this was what was absolutely necessary to do. And I also knew that at some point it would bring about less conflict in the situation. This is not a movement away from self-centeredness to other centeredness. That's not the way it works. It's really a movement from self-centeredness to openness, to a true listening to the wisdom, to the intelligence in the universe. The Buddha's path was to move out of self-consciousness into openness. And our path is exactly the same. No difference. Our practice is to see whatever is in the way of this, whatever is in the way of fulfilling the possibilities of essential nature. It's not changing into something else. It's a glimpse into who we really are. As we know, there's no rest in I-thinking. There's no rest when we're enslaved by thoughts. The more at home we are, the more at rest, the more Buddha nature has a chance to reveal itself. And what is something that separates us from ourselves? What is something that separates us from one another? Judgment. Judgment of ourselves and judgment of others. A farmer requested a Tendai priest to recite sutras for his wife who had died. After this was over, the farmer asked, Do you think my wife will gain merit from this? Not only your wife, but all sentient beings will benefit from the recitation of sutras, answered the priest. If you say all sentient beings will benefit, said the farmer, my wife may be very weak and others will take advantage of her, getting the benefit she should have. So please recite the sutras just for her. The priest explained that it was the desire of a Buddhist to offer blessings and wish merit for every living being. That is a fine teaching, concluded the farmer, but please make one exception. I have a neighbor who is rough and mean to me. Just exclude him from all those sentient beings. (laughs) Forgiveness towards ourselves, and forgiveness towards others is what eases the judgment. Peter once asked Jesus, Sir, how often should I forgive my brother if he keeps wronging me? Up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, Not just seven, seventy times seven. And perhaps if Jesus were around right now, Gil and I are quite arrogant in terms of knowing what the Buddha or Jesus might say, 
But if he were around, perhaps he would say, it would be like this. Peter once asked Jesus, Sir, how often should I forgive myself if I keep wronging myself? Up to seven times? And Jesus said, not just seven, 70 times seven. Expressing our unity with all beings doesn't mean being foolish when we're in the midst of an abusive situation. It means working with skill and openness in whatever situation we find ourselves in. And the answer is different according to the different situation. Not too long ago, a couple of days ago, we had a staff meeting and the subject of violence was brought up. We talked about violence a lot. What's a Buddhist answer to violence? Which is a very, very deep question. Something that each one of us has to hold within us. I remember at a time, I was walking down the street in Cambridge. It was dark out. I was walking by myself. And someone came running at me, right, making a beeline for me. And I thought, well, you know, maybe he's just jogging because um, <laughs> people do tend to be eccentric in Cambridge. And I thought maybe just out for a jog at, you know, when it's dark out and the pollution. <laughs> and um, he came up to me and started hitting me on the face quite hard. I had just left a three-month course at the time. And during the three-month course, what I kept hearing was, give it up, let it go, give it up over and over again for three months. And this person came up to me and started hitting me and kept saying, give it up, give it up. And of course, you know, he met my pocketbook, but I thought greed, hatred, and delusion. (laughs) (laughs) This is an example of foolishness in action. (laughs) And you know, we just kind of had to get our roles straight in terms of he was, he went on my pocketbook, I was the Robbie. (laughs) But it it made it quite complicated because I was holding the bag to my heart. You know, as I was as I was understanding him in this way, I was holding the bag to my heart. And then what happened is I got it, you know, it took me a while, but I realized the reality of the situation. He wasn't just a Zen master giving me a (laughs) giving me a very vivid message. And I screamed, and I screamed so loudly that my throat was sore for three days. And what happened is that he got totally scared and ran off, and um, I saved him from the karma of getting my pocketbook. He left my pocketbook, and many, many people came out of the apartment building, of the apartment building, which is quite unusual in Cambridge. It must have been a loud scream. Someone came out with Southern Comfort. (laughs) (laughs) I took a little sip to be polite. (laughs) And um, someone else said, watch your breathing. I don't know who it was. You know, the person appeared and then disappeared. But watch your breathing. 
was quite an extraordinary, extraordinary situation. But you know, I felt it was, it was, um, the scream itself was so clear and so loud and so full that it made me happy afterwards that that was the response. You know, who knows what the response might be? And certainly my first response was high, you know, delusion. But the second response was just awe. And um, it was quite an interesting situation. We all, all human beings, have a yearning towards peace, towards union, towards intimacy. In the old um, Chinese Buddhist texts, sometimes the end of sutras, they say, many times they say, they'll have a whole sutra and a whole story, and then it'll say, and the yogi became enlightened. Every so often in these sutras, instead of the word enlightened, what's said is, and the yogi became intimate. The same as enlightenment, and the yogi became intimate. And this is our practice, where self and other dissolve, and there is an intimacy with everything in our life, an intimacy with everything in our world. An intimacy when we walk outside and we see a tree, an intimacy with the cockroach, an intimacy right now with our bodies, with our minds, dissolving into this intimacy, not pushing, not trying to make anything happen out of ambition, but dissolving into this intimacy, into intimacy, self, and other faiths. Let me just end by reading something by Rumi. Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense. together for a few minutes.
may all beings live in peace within themselves. May all beings live in peace with one another. May all beings live in peace. So there is a walking right now. Practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.